Awesome. No, perfect. So, so thank you. Uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, welcome to episode 35 of Manufacturing Hub with me, Dave, and this guy down here, Vlad. Uh, we are again in the systems integrator theme, and we have a very special guest. I think we always have special guests, but I think we've got one of the most interesting people um, to, to come on. Every time Justin Dean, our, our guest, and I talk, uh, it's it's like peeling back layers of an onion. And I, if you guys saw the promo, you will see I mentioned, you know, Justin working for NASA. I think I had spent 20 hours talking to Justin before he's like, oh yeah, I did this at NASA. Uh, so I, this, this should be a very good conversation. And without further ado, Justin, uh, welcome. Thank you. Uh, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. This should be uh, good. But no, really, yeah. really appreciate you joining, Justin. Uh, so as Dave alluded to, and I guess I haven't uh, done an extensive research or haven't spoken to you about your background as much as he has, uh, could you give us maybe a little synopsis of uh, what you've done and how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, so uh, yeah, so I originally, um, when I was in school, I actually went to college. I, I studied art, which is like strange. Okay. Um, and I took a design class. The guy taught it from an electronics perspective. I didn't know anything about electronics. Um, and I was in his course for probably like a semester. Then after it, he was like, hey, I think you should switch to electrical engineering. And so um, next semester, but well, actually he said, you'll make more money. I heard more money. I switched. Ah. Didn't know anything about it pretty much. Um, and pretty much uh, after I switched, Pretty much every job I took while I was in school, because I was on a, I was on an athletic scholarship, and um, I uh, took around not necessarily engineering roles specifically, but things that were going to help me after I got into the workforce, essentially, right? So, um, so yeah, I mean, pretty much I've spent the last probably, you know, since 1999, 2000 um, in the. Uh, everything from electrical engineering to automation to software development uh pretty much anything technology um not just on the industrial side so um that's where i kind of you know tell people all the time like if they look at my resume you, usually people think it's in like three or four different people's body you know it's, <laughs> but it's just it's just the situation of not turning down things you know projects or whatever in the early days or whatever. So, um, and the fact that like, um, this may be good for listeners, whatever, and the fact that like in 2000, 2001, a company I worked for, uh, their IT administrator knew kind of my background and she was like, you, you should start going down the road of like all these IT certifications, like, you know, like Microsoft and stuff like that. Because one day, the world you're in right now and the IT world will merge together. And so this was like, you know, like pretty much like 20 years ago, right? So um, that's kind of what I kind of set out um, to do. So primarily spent a lot of my time in um, everything from oil and gas to manufacturing, um, water, wastewater. I mean, pretty much most industries, even the entertainment industry developing some technologies there um um so yeah i mean I, i'm pretty much um kind of been around a lot of different stuff usually people you know will contact me ask me if i if i have uh 
heard of this platform or use this platform or something, nine times out of 10, I probably have at least done a project with it. Um, so would have some level of familiarity, I guess, with it. So yeah, pretty much everything, I would say to a certain extent, obviously not everything, but I can't really think of something off the top of my head, you know, at the moment. But. I, I think, you... uh, go ahead, go ahead. Dave. I was going to say, I, I think Justin uh, bucks the trend of uh, of jack of all trades master of none i i think justin like generally fits into jack of all trades master of all <laughs> i don't want that but i was gonna ask you how did you approach like learning these platforms right because was it out of uh you know necessity for a specific project or would you just like be curious enough to learn because i'm assuming you didn't learn all of them at the engineering school right after you've well, uh, yeah yeah true done a yeah. couple of jobs yeah now. so so coming out of school like um i worked for an oil and gas services company and primarily the role i was in, i was i was electronics engineer so mm -hmm. I split my time between doing pretty much like automation for test equipment that would go into manufacturing facilities internally inside the business. All, all, all you know, as I said before, probably six of the seven continents, wherever. So these machines are, while there's a lot of automation on these machines, they're very, they're very precise. So there's a lot of precision, a lot of calibration that has to be taken into account. So in that time frame, people were afraid to let PLCs do like full control, mm -hmm. data acquisition, all in one box. So, so, so a lot of people actually would have like a PLC for primarily like safety controls, right? Mm -hmm. And then they would use data acquisition systems to collect the data, right? Because you're looking at things in a very small window. So um now, but with all that being said, like a lot of the front-end software was all custom software. So we weren't using like SCADA platforms or anything like that. Everything was was basically either built in Visual Studio, like, you know, five or six, and then ultimately .NET around 2002. Um, and so um, I sort of got exposed to actually what I would say, like when you look at like control systems, like the actual theory behind a control system, I got exposed to it from those perspectives, like actually in the workforce, right? So mm -hmm. I, it wasn't so much about the hardware platforms or mm -hmm. the software platforms, cause to, cause to me, because of how I came up, those things didn't matter, you know, at all. So. Now, when I went to work, well, when I interviewed to go to work at NASA, that's one thing they asked me, well, what SCADA platforms have you worked with? And so, um, so then it's like, you know, obviously I'd worked with some, you know, during that length of uh, some time, but the reality was, was like, my approach was, well, we just build our own, right? In a lot of situations you know, in places I had worked before. So, uh, and at the time, well, even it's still true today, uh, NASA pretty much was all iconics, you know, for the most part. Okay. So, um, so they were like, okay, well, if you've done stuff in C++ and Visual Basic and Cold Fusion, or I call Confusion or whatever it is, ah, platform, ah, ah. whatever, um, that, I mean, you can learn, you, you can learn iconics, whatever. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, so 
it sort of was like this. I don't I don't know if I would really call it by accident necessarily, but it definitely wasn't necessarily, hey, I set out to learn Alan Bradley, I set out to learn this or that or whatever. It's just those things because I was being at the time of, you know, like my the company I worked for initially right out of school was bad about um selling a solution, buying all the hardware, shipping it, and then saying go implement it. <laughs> so you're in a situation where you're designing the system on site, you're developing the software on site, you're installing everything, you're commissioning the whole system, right? So you were thrown into situations where you were forced to have to adapt. So really at the end of the day, you care less about the platforms and, and, and stuff of that nature. And that's just stuff that has stuck even to today. Because to me today, obviously there's different platforms and there's different experiences within those platforms. But at the same time, a PLC is a PLC. You still have to go through the same steps to get from A to Z. Um, and the same is true for skater platforms. Obviously, you know, obviously there's benefits from say one platform to another one based on your infrastructure that you have but that's just kind of the way i always approached it so mm -hmm. it's kind of a long answer but yeah. and along the way i guess you made the call of uh starting your own systems integration company right and yeah. look for clients yeah. and kind of what was uh what was that process like or what pushed you i guess to uh to go that mm -hmm. route yeah i mean i really never set out to go into business for myself um it was a situation i had been told like you don't really fit it you because of the skill set right so when someone would have me in their company because i served in various roles from just a you know like regular engineer to like a director you know level position was like okay well you really don't like fit in in a lot of situations so how do you use someone that has a lot of different skills in a a company that has an initiative that is a certain thing or whatever it is. So um, I was working for a company um, and um, I think I was like the director of engineering and technology and they got a project to build a facility. They really had had sold it. I was the only one that really had this, the overall skill set because at the end of the day, they were primarily a pump company that had had acquired an automation side and then I pretty much uh, ran the automation side. So I was essentially a running a business. I just didn't own it, you know, essentially, mm -hmm. right? Um, so um, my customer got to the point, he was like, hey, um, you either need to come work for me or you need to go start your own business. And so then I was like, well, I'm gonna build your project. So I kind of just brushed it off, you know? And then because that was sort of the middle part of the year, like probably third to fourth quarter time frame mm -hmm. of that particular year. And then um, and then the next January, I pretty much uh, left that company and uh, and started, uh, you know, Sahoma Controller ultimately and uh, and started that route. And uh, and also the good thing was I had someone that I was advising on from a technical perspective that sort of had an integration, I guess they're more like a project management company that their father had built out. 
and they had a project. And so I really didn't care about how much money I made off of the project. I really just cared as my business to get the experience as the business mm-hmm. because of because I already had the experience, right? But it was a matter of like uh, doing that. And then like pretty much the business started growing pretty well um, just because, you know, I'd spent so long in an industry where I had, you know, like lots of contacts and stuff like that. So it's not like I'm working somewhere as an electrician and then all of a sudden decide to start my automation business where I have no contacts, you know, so I was able to convert those, you know, contacts essentially into, you know, projects and contracts and stuff like that. So how did you, when you like started out, did you have maybe a, a certain aim or focus on what, uh, you know, platforms you were going to serve or did you kind of work with your contacts and figure out what, mm-hmm. uh, what made sense for you? How, what was the process like of, you know, getting the first, maybe, I don't know, three to five projects. Yeah. So the first, you know, so the first, uh, you know, by I look at the first year or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, I knew what the, the, uh, the products or the platforms that were pretty much in the market in the geographic region that I was in. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, you know, like Alan Bradley or, or, uh, you know, skater pack, whatever situation was, but then I learned ultimately, now this is a little, a little different situation, but I learned that like I had this relationship with, you know, distributors when I had worked in these other businesses for, um, some time. Right. And it was good relationships. But then I realized when I went on my own, even though you've known these people for probably 10 to 15 years, you're starting over because your business is a nobody. They know who you are, but let's say someone like Rockwell, I mean, I don't want to pick on Rockwell, but, but like, like, you know, I, I tried buying the toolkit for like six months, <laughs> you know, and then he's like, well, you have to spend X amount of money. And I already spent that amount of money. And so then I just decided early on, I started using my projects as the way to invest into the tools that I was going to need from the technology aspect. So I basically, I went out and bought like, um, you know, all the programming software, all of that sort of stuff. But I used projects to fund that um, initially right so and then wait so did I you would... stick to sorry to interrupt did you stick to rockwell based on that experience or did you switch tools and went uh... no, i mean obviously i knew what the market was right okay. but i was not like stuck with rockwell i wasn't stuck with any manufacturer so i always went into a situation project wise uh, looking at it from the perspective of like what is the customer's infrastructure so if someone because Cause this happened to us where basically we had a, um, a distributor that was a Siemens distributor mm-hmm. and was trying to sell the, a paper manufacturer on Siemens. The guy that was going to buy the solution was all about Siemens. He knew Siemens and all this sort of stuff. So he was so on this, like, okay, I just need you to, to go in there, you know, because we need you to help us, you know, deliver this solution. It was pr- primarily going to be like a motion control, you know, uh, project or whatever. So it's okay. So I go in there, I meet with them. So this guy is talking about, I mean, it's Siemens everything. And so I'm thinking about like, okay, well, they must have a lot of Siemens. I go out to the manufacturing floor and it's nothing but control objects. And I'm like, well, Siemens doesn't make sense. 
I said, because you already have like this, say one machine they got from like China or something had like some like uh, Mitsubishi PLC on it or something. Mm -hmm. I was like, you're not, it doesn't make sense for you to go from one oddball control system to another one. Well, it's when your entire infrastructure is control logics. I mean, everything was control logics. They had the, like their entire facility was everything Alan Bradley. So now the distributor, he respected my you know thoughts on it. He didn't really, I guess, like it necessarily, but I'm like, I, you know, and so that's when like he pretty much started realizing like I really didn't care well about the platform. It was really about what makes sense in that like situation for the customer. So that's kind yeah. of been the approach. Yeah. That, uh, I mean, that definitely makes sense. I mean, I, I would say, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it's unfortunate when you force the customer to switch because of your, um, I guess, like personal preference or knowledge. I think it should be uh, more of the, like, as you described, I guess you should be willing to learn the other platform. And at the end of the day, I think if you know uh, Rockwell or Siemens, it shouldn't be that difficult to transition from one to the other or even, yeah. a, even a different platform. I would say, obviously, it's becoming a little bit more of a learning curve with um, you know other higher-level languages, especially if you don't have uh, a background like yours going, let's say, from ladder logic to programming something in, uh, in C, for example, or, or .NET. But um, yeah. I, again, I, I think the customer should be obviously kind of leading that... Um, uh, that selection, but uh, no, I mean, I, I think that's what a lot of I'm sure systems integrators face uh, like early on. And how would you, I guess, if you were to give someone some advice starting off right now, um, like what are your thoughts on you know establishing those first contracts? Um, what maybe key relationships helped you uh, help you get there as a systems integrator? Um, I would say probably even before that, I would like set up the business. I would set, well, well like if, if someone's going out on their own, they're going to start their own business. Like mm -hmm. I would set up their entire, I would work on, now obviously you can't set up your whole infrastructure before you start taking on clients because maybe you need to start making money or whatever. But I would set it up in the fact that like the moment I start taking on clients, I'm just rolling them into my process. I'm not having to adapt my process because I went from a small customer to now, you know, I'm a large customer, you know. So, um, but as far as like establishing, you know, relationships, I mean, I always like, I always approached, you know, obviously the manufacturer is important and the distributor is important. So I, I because before I started my business, my, first business I seen where people primarily would just have the relationship with the distributor. And so that only gets them like so far, you know, pretty much. And so I looked at it like, okay, if I can establish, if I have this relationship uh, with the distributor and I can build also a, re a relationship with the manufacturer, like everyone can sort of like, you know, come to a certain point to where you know i add more value across both of those situations you know okay. so that was kind of my you know thing and then ultimately you're going to get led to the end customer you know ultimately i mean at the, at the end of the day so 
what are your thoughts? Uh, so th this question like came up uh, when we spoke um, on the last episode with Dave. But what are your thoughts on learning? You know the different platforms. So you said obviously understanding the market, but I think there's also value. Uh, especially today, you know, with some of the smaller, let's say, OEMs and different systems where you can go either, let's say, like Phoenix Contact, like BNR, you could learn, let's say, Code Assist, for example. What are your thoughts on, you know, instead of going the traditional route, maybe picking a smaller, uh, I guess, growing system, learning that platform and then trying to land, you know, projects through that avenue? Or you still think that maybe it's more advantageous, obviously, again, to specialize more on, let's say, Rockwell and Siemens and then service certain clients with the other platforms? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, people, I think it, like, in, well, like in industrial automation, people have to uh, continue to learn something like pretty much on a daily basis. Maybe not daily, but pretty often you're always having to like learn something new, so whether it is a different PLC or whatever, because I personally feel like when you look at engineers or you look at people that, you know, like if you look at the automation engineer, like the automation engineer has to know a lot of different disciplines pretty much, you yeah. know, so they've got to know, you know, some mechanical, some hydraulics, some pneumatics, obviously controls some, you know, some software, you know, but in some sort of, concepts wherever so i think the i think the the skill set because the skill set has to be pretty much so diverse pretty you know to a certain extent that there's always this thing of having to learn different things and then if you're in a learning state constantly then when something new comes along it's really not that big a deal to adapt to it to learn it and that sort of even on projects you've never done before because your mindset is in a situation of of always learning something right so it's easier to adapt but but like i said i mean it you know maybe not everyone is like that but maybe everyone is and they just don't know you know yeah i think that makes sense dave what are your what are your thoughts no, I think that Justin's point as to constantly having to learn is is a very good point. And I would say if you look at Justin's uh, very broad career path as an example, it's uh, he's had to learn or had the opportunity foisted upon him to learn many things and has continued to succeed in those. And I would say that that's probably the most important skill set in this industry and probably every industry if you want to continue to stay at the top of your profession and continue to find opportunities is be willing and interested to learn both on company time for projects and, you know, cause you're interested and you want to go, you know, build a demo wall, like you see behind you, Vlad. I know some part of that is, you know, you want to learn new things. And so I think that that's very important. Uh, going to the, Going to the point of, of what you were saying about kind of setting up business processes, Justin, I know that you do you do some amount of mentorship, right? You help other people kind of grow and, and start their businesses. That that was a very interesting theme that we talked about last episode. W would you mind kind of sharing as to how you have become either the unofficial or maybe more official uh, mentor to, to many people in their businesses? I just, um, well... Obviously, over time, you know, going back a few years, obviously, uh, people, you know, like Zach Scriven and Walker Reynolds sort of got the exposure towards myself by throwing my name and everything. Or not, I don't say everything, but in certain times or whatever. 
So um, obviously that got, you know, some exposure. So, you know, so by naturally people, you know, inbox you about technical questions, say, hey, I'm, you know, I'm going to start this business and mm -hmm. like stuff like that. And I've been, you know, so when I started like Sahoma that like, you know, it was like, you know, I didn't have like a coach. I didn't have someone I was mm -hmm. like, you know, so everything was what I would consider learning the hard way. So obviously when you learn stuff the hard way, it's like being cemented in your head, right? So you kind of know what things don't work, what things have worked and so on mm -hmm. and lessons learned. So I just always went down the road of just passing on like lessons learned and information that I, you know, had gathered over the time that worked for, you know, obviously myself. And then I've spent the last three or four years just learning about other things. Um, cause I, cause I do feel that if someone gets involved in a business, it does allow them to get involved in, into other things. Um, if, you know, uh, assuming that that's what they want to do. I mean, eventually I really didn't set out to do some of the other uh, business stuff that I'm involved in, but it just sort of happened or whatever. But yeah, I, uh, spent a fair amount of time, you know, um, helping people just really just passing on my information and, and, uh, you know, and so now like it's kind of turned into a business where we're doing like some marketing and, um, some branding and, um, uh, some coaching, I guess, uh, with another business partner. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, I just look at it like sharing knowledge really. So. I want to, uh, shift a little bit and talk about, you know, some of the technologies that you see like coming up and get your maybe insights on where you see the manufacturing industry going. Cause I think there's, there's this like somewhat of a shift I would say happening, you know, and you can, you can label it with many different words that we all know that are thrown around, but uh, where do you think um, we're headed in the next, again, I want to say five years, but I think it's going to be more of a, of a decade do you see like manufacturing automation like fundamentally changing or you see just maybe more of the same with slight changes and improvements what are your what are your thoughts around that i think you'll drastically see a change in um like the advancements that's have that's starting to happen right now there's you know a few people doing these things right well whether it's on the iot side or if it's in the whole uh, digital transformation or whatever, you know, side. Um, I do see like automation sort of like continually to transform and which means the job roles that sort of either support the automation task or just the manufacturing task are going to ultimately change. Um, you know, In what so, way? I think you're going to have more, I think you're going to probably have a less operators and you're going to have more people looking at like information, like trying to make decisions because you're going to have, because obviously with COVID and everything that's happened, a lot of manufacturers probably felt like their business because now I'm, I'm, I've got automation in my manufacturing plant, but I have also a bunch of people in the plant. And then when COVID shut down, basically most of the world is like their business sort of like came to a screeching halt to a certain degree. Right. 
So then in that situation, I think I, I think on the manufacturing side, they've, they've learned that like, they don't want to ever let those things happen again, right? So they need, their business has to continue to, to move on, even if like COVID happens again, or there's a whole di uh, different mm -hmm. situation, which I'm sure there will be in the future. So I think um, by leveraging all of these different technologies, um, they're going to, you know, try to put themselves in positions to where they don't get, you know, like stopped or shut down, you know. And I think the ones that don't pretty much, I mean, it, like they may be around, they may not be around, but there's a high probability that those manufacturers will go away or the integrators that approach things from that certain aspect will probably go away. Um, and because you now have a new flavor of, of automation that's sort of taken the, you know, form. Because if you look at, you have like a automation stack mm -hmm. and then you have a technology stack. They're essentially, those worlds are essentially merging together, right? Mm -hmm. So where the value of having guys that understand the full stack can also add value over here in the automation stack and vice versa, yep, probably absolutely. to a certain extent. So I think that's what you're really going to see outside the sort of obvious trying to collect data and know where things are at within, you know, a few minutes or, you know, something like that. So as far as from a manufacturing aspect is. So Justin, I was going to say, Justin, do you think that we're going to have less operators because it makes sense to automate some of those systems? Um, or do you think we're going to have less operators because it's very difficult to get and train and keep operators and it's going to force many facilities to move away from as many manual tasks? I don't think you're going to get rid of probably the number of people necessarily. Yeah. I think okay. their jobs are going to transform. Okay. So like if you look at like operator rate, they do tasks yep. that essentially you could leverage like machine learning for. Some of them, yeah. To some of them, not yep. everything, but there are certain things that could assist that individual. So now they know that guy or, or, or gal's job now changes a little bit for now they're being given options to like, hey, what do I want to do here As, and so on. So they're still going to be, I think, involved in the process. I just think that the skill sets will have okay. to change a little bit. You know? So it's going to be less physical and I guess more decision-making as, as you were kind of alluding to. I personally think there's, yeah, I think there's going to be, you know, you, now you know, how do you get there? Because you have individuals that are operators, you know, that like, because, you know, the traditional mindset of an operator is like, I want to hit this button. I understand just what my, you know, situation is here. I really don't know why I'm doing certain things. Some people do. I'm not saying they don't. Mm -hmm. But but I think going forward is like, there will be a little bit different knowledge base as far as like that goes for the operators or pretty much a lot of different positions throughout the enterprise probably. Um, because you're trying to connect everything essentially Absolutely. because, because in, instead of you having to wait like an entire shift to know what happened you will mm -hmm. know now like in a few minutes right? absolutely so in order to make that happen the job 
skill sets have to obviously change will be because your systems have to change at the end of the day so you know the, uh, this uh dave if you don't mind me throwing in the next question I, I i'm you know like very curious on you know the thoughts and there was an article i think it was about tesla last year where they've like they brought in so much automation into their facility obviously for trying to automate some of the manual tasks but because it required so much i would say like skilled personnel which as of right now we're lacking in most u.s facilities i'm wondering yeah. if there's a risk where again because they see that the pandemic you know required them to adapt like we bring in so much automation that it becomes increasingly difficult to uh, keep operations at a certain point, then you see some kind of like a correction, uh, you know, in these facilities. I'm wondering like if you see, um, again, like similar risks that may occur or you think that we can just kind of automate and it should be uh, no problem whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think um, automating, you know, in that, in that like situation, I think you have to have a balance Right, it's not like, hey, I want to implement so much automation that everybody has to has to be at this certain level just to be at the minimum, you know, position or whatever, you know. So, I mean, I think that that so there's maybe phases, right? Like, I, I guess I, I don't know what phases. it looks like either. Because just... you are, I would say, you're looking at over a decade where basically mm. by you know in tier probably ten years from now like the position would have been a little, well, would have been a lot different, totally probably transformed. To what point, we probably don't know yet, but over, you know, from now to then, those jobs will, you know, probably slowly transform um, mm -hmm. by either, you know, you know, these, these individuals being forced to learn a new task or new skill or whatever it is. And then by the, time a decade sort of happens where basically um you know now they have a completely different thing the other thing people got to realize is you know too is the fact that like eventually the baby boomers are moving out right mm -hmm. so i mean they're going to retire they're going to die off all of these things are actually going to happen right um so i mean the robots are, are not going to not happen so so no so now it's like the other younger generation coming up is already has the analytical mindset. Mm -hmm. Like even the ones people label as like not very smart. Like if you look at like <laughs> people that are obsessed with like the Xbox and mm -hmm. in gaming, they're very, they're technical from the sense in that environment. So if I ask anybody that is heavy into that like situation, they can tell me all the ins and outs of everything, yep. right? That's no different than an extremely good operator, like in mm -hmm. an oil gas facility. So to me, you know, companies should be, I guess, looking at the skill sets of this generation coming up and being like, okay, how can I leverage these individuals, because ultimately, like, you know, my other folks are going to go away at some point. So, Absolutely. so my knowledge base goes away, you know. So, I mean, I personally think that's where you'll see, like, people get forced into going into, like, mixed, you know, um, where basically the skating system, it may change on how, how basically information 
is presented to the operator or whoever is in that role, mm -hmm. you know, based on who's coming up as, as well, right? So, I mean, you might get into the mixed reality and all of that sort of stuff because those individuals are growing up in a time frame that they know so much from that perspective. Dave, you had a question before I interrupted you earlier, but uh, I completely agree with Justin. I think it's it's going to be very different, I guess, for, for the people coming up. Because again, I think we talked about this with uh, some of our other guests, but at two years mm -hmm. old, you're pretty much holding a tablet in your hands. And, yep. uh, you know, some of the games, not to get into a lot of that those details, but even Minecraft, I think, has uh, a full simulator on circuits and the uh, logic that you couldn't get out of like a, an electrical engineer, you know, coming out of university sometimes. So mm -hmm. th there's certain or a lot of pluses in uh, in many of those, I would say, like educational games too. No, I, absolutely. And I, I was going to say, I, I agree with what Justin is saying. And I think that we've certainly seen a lot of that shift of technology away from every process as a manual process, right? So I've worked with customers in the past that, you know, they have to, they make something, they have to heat treat the something, and then it has to get painted. Maybe it has to get quenched. Maybe it has to get serialized in there, you know, our steps. And, you know, in the past, it would be the, we, we put this thing together and, you know, we weld the pieces together and then we put it in a pallet on a pallet. The pallet gets forked over to the, the furnace. And if it's a belt furnace, then there's a person that sits there and just loads it all day. And when they're done, another person comes and brings another pallet and then it falls out the end, maybe into a quenched tank, maybe on into another basket. And then another person comes with the fork to take it to the next step. And so we've certainly seen those go into more assembly line style processes where, you know, the thing gets made and then it goes on the belt and, you know, the belt furnace takes it through the process and it quench and it comes up and it gets painted and serialized and all of those things. So I think uh, to agree with what Justin was saying, we've certainly seen a shift towards that. And I think that we will continue to see the shift of being able to collect more data and turning those into, you know, longer series of combined tasks, which will allow us to make more product with less physical labor in between every single one of those tasks. No, perfect. Uh, so I think this is a good time. Uh, so, so Justin, um, every time we, we get to talk about our sponsor, um, I get to go ahead and ask Vlad to give us uh, his strange laugh, which is now our key for, for the sponsorship. So Vlad, can you give us the strange laugh and we'll talk about Phoenix Contact? <laughs> See, isn't it so awkward, Justin? But uh, but no. So uh, so so we're very happy to continue the sponsorship uh, for the theme with Phoenix Contact. Um, and we, we kind of have breaking news. They they told us we could can. Well, they didn't tell us we had to stop saying this. So we're going to continue to talk about it. So everyone knows the PLC next, right? So it, it's been all over everywhere. Um, Vlad will hold up his PLC next starter kit, which is impossible to get. But they also have the PLC next Edge Gateway. So this is so the, the Edge Gateway is downloaded through the PLC Next app store onto the PLC Next. And it's a state-of-the-art IIoT and edge computing solution designed for data collection in the most demanding environments. Whether you have a small machine or an entire manufacturing floor, the PLC Next Edge Gateway leverages its advanced industrial design and programming openness to collect data from any device or sensor and send it directly to the cloud service of your choice. They say any data, any data, any cloud. 
And so there are a bunch of advantages uh, towards that, uh, you know, the data to the cloud, the IIoT, which is a little bit kind of where this conversation was going. Uh, no programming required cybersecurity ready, compatible gateway CPU products and required accessories, compatible IO products, which is what Vlad was holding up, and compatible network and communication products. And we have a URL for you guys to take a look at. I don't think it's been posted anywhere that is not the show. Um, and it would make Ira very happy if we go and broke the uh, the Phoenix Contact website. So if you guys want to go ahead and hammer that uh, hammer that URL, uh, the phoenixcontact.com slash US hyphen edge gateway. If you're listening and don't want to check the show notes, uh, you guys can go ahead and do that. Um, and so I think that this is very interesting and it kind of alludes to what I think is, is the, the next you know, part of the conversation. So Justin, you said at the beginning of your career, you were designing all of these systems and they had a PLC to kind of run the process. And that PLC was just for safety and control. And then there was another data acquisition system uh, kind of living above that. What do, you, what do you see in the future? Do you see, you know, potentially having a bunch of IIoT style solutions where we have, you know, be it Raspberry Pis, be it PLC next, something like that, sitting there kind of collecting data and sending it somewhere? Or do you think that all of kind of this next generation of data solutions will be completely integrated into the PLCs that live on the plant floor? Um, yeah, I mean, I think every, I mean, as time goes on, I think you're going down the road of, of less of all these different protocols. Yep to kind of a, a standard, a standard, you know, protocol, like something like MQTT or something. It may, it may be that, it may be something else that comes out later or whatever. But I do think the whole like publishing data will definitely be the standard into the future. This is why when I talk to like, when I've just talk to different companies or like primarily like in, if it's been integrators, whatever, because I do work with like other integrators, mm -hmm. other other end customers. And that's essentially like to me, like the, you know, these things are going to change. Right. So um, there, you know, like you still have integrators that are stuck in like this whole industry, like 2.0, 3.0, like time frame. Mm -hmm. I, got, I don't say 2.0, but really 3.0, I guess. Um, but, um, and so I think that, uh, with this whole, like, energy 4.0 whole concept of the implementation of, like, IoT and machine learning and, like, all of these different things that people are trying to do at the enterprise level anyway. Yep. Right? But it all starts around where do you get the data from? Where do you point the data to? Yep. And so on, right? So I think that you're going to have that the industry of industrial automation is going to shift to something similar to the actual software development industry. Yeah. Because they've already, they, they essentially function like what everyone's talking about. Everyone's talking about this whole, this whole unified namespace and all this other stuff. That industry has pretty much been doing some of those things like for, for quite a while. And I think that like, like even down to, you know, open source, like open platforms. I mean, everything being open. I mean, like you're looking at say, you know, 
since it's responsible. So Phoenix Contact, for example, like we've used that same uh, demo that he has in his office or whatever. So we got, well, we had one in our little lab or whatever. And so um, I think that like, so, so, so if I look at something like a Phoenix Contact and you compare it to something, it don't matter who you compare it to. If you compare it to Siemens, Alan Bradley, whoever, the the relation you know if you look at Alan Bradley like you're a heavy relationship based in that like situation by you by either being forced to use their platform in a certain area or whatever now you're in a Phoenix contact or something like that where it's an open platform pretty much right so now mm -hmm. the relationship actually as far as the hardware to the company to the, you know, if it's the distributor or whoever it is, really becomes, I mean, less important because if you get mad at the, if, if customer A gets mad at whoever, that's also on a Codasys platform and goes to Phoenix contact, there's a lot that they can reuse. They're not having to now say, well, okay, well, now I got to now have a project where I have to have someone basically replicate, um, you know, uh, this platform over here, right? So um, I think, you know, because of the evolution of, of code assist and, and stuff like that, you're going to start to see where the hardware really becomes, I'll say, less important, you know, overall. Um, because you can go to a lot of the different places, probably not everywhere, obviously, but yep. I mean, you have a lot of options as a customer. Now. It's interesting that you mentioned that as an example. You know, I, I've never thought about it, but the migration projects really are, I would say, challenging, mm -hmm. right? Like even going from, let's say, like Rockwell to Siemens or vice versa or to a different platform it's a lot of engineering effort and ultimately dollars spent just to right. because there is no tool that allows you to just like take this program, mm -hmm. put it in the tool and then it, you know, spits mm -hmm. out the, the other program on the other side. There's really yep. no way to do it easily. So let me ask you, Justin. So I, I would love to get to, to what you're describing, right? But I feel that that's like very utopian, right? That That's almost like if we were to sit down today, that would be the utopia automation that we write about, you know, in, in 20 years. What do you think that we need to do, you know, as a community or what do we need to, what needs to happen to get to the point where we could, in theory, you know, swap out, you know, hardware or maybe we get into a supply chain issue like we're in now, and instead of having to rebuild something in a Siemens product that you can do or in a Rockwell product that you can find from the opposites, we can generally swap it in and keep it ready to go. What, what do you think would have to happen to get to that point? I think that um, the people that really, so if you look at the customer, obviously the end customers is is the people buying the solution, yep. the, the people buying and owning ultimately the solutions. So it's more of along the lines of like educating them on, mm -hmm. on that, right? And it's also about like, not only educating them on that, but it's like presenting to them, you know, how to sort of make them more efficient, right? Because like, if you're talking about, because honestly, like if you're talking about someone right now that has like Siemens or Alan Bradley going to wait, going to whether it's Wago, Phoenix, Contact, yep. whoever, 
um, it's obviously there's a transition path, right? Yep. Um, and a you know maybe a major project to do a conversion or something. So mm -hmm. you're going to have that issue. I mean, regardless, you know that situation. What I'm saying is, if I have a platform that is already in codices, because we actually had this like situation, company wants it in, you know, they's like, can we swap it out for this piece of hardware because it's available right now, and my other one, mm -hmm. it went yep. out, right? So, is essentially you can essentially um, do that because you're uh, because codices is essentially like becoming a standard, just like MQTT is in the communication side. The other value in that open platform is the fact that like, if I do have to talk to these odd protocols or it, as it thinks it's odd, you know, I'm not saying a mod bus or any of those things are odd, but, but in those situations that, that those things might be already available. So now you can take almost any code assist driven PLC and communicate so many different protocols you know, you know right now so you could uh, do this transition in a different way than you probably would have done these things before what are your thoughts on you know controls being migrated to the cloud and the reason why i ask is i've had this conversation ah. with a couple of people i know that it's certainly a challenge but everyone seems to talk about i would say like the value of data but i'm I'm still curious, you know, are controls going to fundamentally change or do you think, again, I think going from a, a PLC that runs like one software or the other isn't going to necessarily change how we do controls, right? Maybe the programming is different between, uh, again, doing it in ladder logic on, uh, on a Siemens or Rockwell versus like CodeAssist, like sure, it's going to open up some like different hardware, but if you go into the cloud, I think there's going to be very different opportunities but obviously with the, with the challenges of your network, your latencies and, and whatnot, what are your thoughts around there? Um, I don't know if you have like full control like in the cloud, obviously with the advances of code assist, because code assist, you know, it can be a soft PLC or there's other things out there that could essentially do that. You're still gonna have hardware at some point you have hardware like in the in the field essentially well like, it could be like point io right that it's it like be, hardware but it's like it driven be point io or remote io or something right. like that maybe i mean i don't know i don't really don't know if that would go to that extreme in the in in recent time i guess you know um maybe eventually i mean they i mean but i don't know that that's that's a hard but like that would literally be a hard a hard thing to sell a company on like, hey, well, 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 oh, we're now going to control everything from AWS or Azure or, you know, something like that when people have a hard time accessing SharePoint, mm -hmm. you, know, <laughs> I mean, you know, so, um, you know, so, I mean, that's kind of the way I would live. I mean, it's possible. I mean, but I mean, um, I don't know how, how reliable in the, in the, in the short term now if you're looking out 20 years 30 years mm -hmm. you really don't know what the potential becomes in that situation you know so you can't really ever rule that out i wouldn't say but by but looking at where things are right now it's kind of difficult to say that that would be something that happened in the next like two to five years or something like that for sure
I'm curious. I mean, like, I, I could see, again, yeah. like, there probably would have to be some, like, failovers and ways to kind of mitigate those risks. And I know, like, many, I mean, again, obviously, it depends on the company, but there's many companies who have, like, several connections from different ISPs to maintain, mm -hmm. you know, it's like 99.99% uh, uptime. And it, it seems that if the if the connectivity goes down, you know, from like a, an internet standpoint, then there's bigger issues than just pure uh, like controls. But again, I'm very curious to see if we're going to see more of those applications. And I, I think it's going to be slowly migrating, right? Like as you see more and more cloud solutions for data, then they're going to slowly, and again, slowly might be like five, 10 years, but uh, open up to uh, to doing some controls. You know, it's going to be probably non-critical applications first. Of, uh, first of all, well, have and to be, then... yeah. Huh? I said, yeah, it would have to be. I mean, you still would have kind of a similar concept for a high reliability or for for like high availability or fault mm -hmm. tolerance systems. That's where all of these different, you know, other technologies will probably be leveraged. A whole lot yeah. more than there are like Kubernetes and things like that, mm -hmm. where you're able to do, you know, uh, some of those things. I mean, um, but like I said, I mean, it's and like you were saying, I I think um, maybe something phased in in small yeah. things over time because it would it would be a hard thing to convince someone unless they're mm -hmm. just um, crazy, just crazy, insane, whatever, um, to do it like right now, you know. So they probably, they probably would lose their job if they actually decided to do something like that. I think that that's a valid point, Justin. And so I, I'm going to make an ask, not probably not to Justin, but to anyone listening. If you know someone who is working and or actively installing cloud only based or mostly cloud control systems, uh, please reach out. Like we, we'd love to have a conversation with them and get them on the yeah. show. Um, I, I think everyone would love to know about their experiences. We, we certainly have this conversation a lot. I think I am more on the Justin side of maybe in our lifetimes, we see something like that, but in, in middle America, in most America, in most parts of the world, I don't think internet connectivity is good enough if it exists to consider running something along the lines of being willing to control applications without uh, or j just online. And for what it's worth to add to that, we would be looking for customers who would be willing to try such applications. <laughs> ah, the, the three of us are going to go in and create a, the first cloud solution and, uh, and we'll have someone videotape the, uh, the whole thing for, uh, for the internet's posterity. I mean, I, I can tell you that there's major like innovation hubs for many companies that are looking at, uh, at such solutions. Like it might mm -hmm. not be like full, you know, cloud control, but certainly in non-critical applications there, they are testing out. Again, what's the uptime? What's the reliability? What are the benefits? Because I think, again, what uh, maybe is the missing component, it's a, it's not just the cloud, right? But like mm -hmm. even AWS and Azure have so many different tools that can be used to like optimize a process. And obviously, as Justin said, like it could be based purely on data. But I think even now we still like we collect the data and then we perform certain actions versus you could be optimizing a lot of uh, these processes in real time. So it's uh for sure not going to be i think in the next uh, few years but uh, there are companies looking into this so it's interesting what uh, what they'll come up with 
No, no, I, I absolutely, I agree. I think that it it makes sense for many companies to push their data into the cloud to be able to use all of the tools that exist on all of the cloud platforms. Um, I, I find more companies than not don't have good, you know, data visualization uh, on right. what's going on within their process. And for many of them, the concept of talking about, we're going to take a relatively unconnected facility and control everything from the internet is, I would literally watch people's brains melt out of their noses um, if, uh, if we were to do that. So, but no, I, I think that that is interesting. But if anyone is doing that or is working in one of these groups, as Vlad mentioned, who would be willing to kind of share their, their thoughts, what they're doing, uh, maybe some conclusions, we, we would love to, uh, we'd love to have that conversation um, with those folks, but no, perfect. So uh, a couple of questions for Justin, as we have again, reached the hour and, uh, and have to wrap up. Um, J Justin, you know, uh, I like to joke that this is our hashtag not sponsored uh, audible ad uh, where, where I ask you what uh, if you've got a couple of book recommendations and and Fladden goes and download downloads it and he'll listen to it as he sleeps to try to to get it via osmosis. But do you have a book or uh, <laughs> book recommendation or two for us? Uh, yeah, I mean, I got a book um, that is called Rocket Fuel. OK, um, it's kind of about um kind of gets the guy kind of walks you through how to like kind of walk yourself forward in life, you know, regardless of like setbacks or negativities or impact in your like situations or whatever. Um, the guy goes by C-Rock. I can't pronounce his last name, but actually I have his book like right here. So I don't know if. Uh, okay. Oh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to attempt to to pronounce his last name, but we'll have yeah. a link to the book right, uh, yeah, somewhere. It's a pretty decent book. I actually, the guy sent me this book because he went live on Instagram and somehow yeah. I got pulled in and up on ah. the line. So we had like a conversation. Um, so, um, but yeah, it's a pretty decent book. I mean, there's other books. I mean, I'm, I guess right now I recently been reading a lot of books on primarily business or, you know, mm -hmm. like money or like stuff like that. Um, so, uh, yeah. That's Can you recommend anything in that uh, domain also? Um, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, like, I mean, um, this is primarily the one, well, I mean, this is kind of like you could relate it to kind of a business-ish okay. book, because it's really for people, either people that want to be a high performer or people that are already high performers, like they want to get to like what they're, well, what they may feel is what their potential is. Obviously, there's books out there and people are trying to sort of expand their you know, um, you know, situation, you know, um, Grant Cardone has like several books and stuff like that, that are pretty decent or whatever. But, uh, um, I think, uh, well, well, I guess what I noticed is there's not a whole lot of books on like automation, but like, there's not a whole lot of books out there, like on the technical side. So you're yeah. having to go track this stuff down on Google and stuff like that. But that's, um, there's another book I have, or I have that I have had for a long time that I'll read it once in a while called, Slaying the Dragon. It's a book by a uh, guy named Michael Johnson, who's a former, uh, I guess, Olympic sprinter. Um, it's a really good book about, you know, um, uh, like a drive and things of that nature. So, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think it's a very good book. So it's not a business book or nothing like that. It's, but definitely people could relate maybe some of these things to business yep. or their jobs or their life or whatever. So, 
Um, it's a pretty Who was it by, Justin? Sorry? Michael Johnson. Okay. I got you. I got it. Yeah. No, interesting. And then to, to that point, uh, if anyone is looking for some automation books, a uh, former guest of the show and friend of the show, he's not in the comments at the moment, otherwise we'd embarrass him. Uh, Frank Lamb has written three or four books, uh, may, much on the technical side, and he says he's working on his fourth or fifth, and he's claiming it's his last, Justin, uh, book uh, specifically devoted to troubleshooting. But uh, anyone who who watches uh, Frank do everything he does, I'm not sure he'll ever be done uh, writing and publishing books. But uh, but no, thank you. Th those are two very interesting recommendations. We will we'll have to check them out. Thank you for that, Justin. Um, and then last question from my side is, you know, who should reach out to you? Uh, yeah, I mean, people, um, if there's situations, projects where I can add value, my situation can add value. Um, pretty much I work with uh, other integrators, other end users, whether they're manufacturers, all, uh, energy uh, companies. Um, those are the kind of people that can reach out. Or on the other side, if there's people trying to launch their brand, they want to um, um, or they're getting ready to start a business. I have another business called Beauty and the Geek. So we started out as a, as a podcast, but we sort of turned into a digital marketing business. Um, and I'm trying to take also these sort of industry 4.0 concepts mm -hmm. into that space because I feel like the business process side, like when mm -hmm. you deal like CRMs and like, learning management systems and all these things that end up being in organizations you could approach the data from from the same standpoint um so um that's kind of uh, what i'm trying to do there obviously it's a little harder when people are just now starting out but at least um it gets people to start thinking about how they're going to handle their data when it comes into to into the organization whether it's in the sales side of things or or whatever. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much that. Oh, awesome. Thank you for that, Justin. I was going to make sure that we, we shouted out your podcast, uh, Beauty and the Geek. Uh, yeah. I would I would say for most everything, Justin, you, you can find him. His hub is generally his, his LinkedIn, um, which you can find him, you know, just about everywhere. Um, on LinkedIn, you'll find Beauty and the Geek, you'll find Pioneer Engineering Design sure. Consulting Controls Group, uh, the, the, the company that, that Justin is working for. You can send him messages on LinkedIn if you're looking for that. Um, but no, thank you, Justin. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, if you're looking for more shows, again, you can find the show at manufacturinghub.live. You can find Vlad at Solus PLC, and you can find me, uh, again, both on LinkedIn and at dave-griffith.com. Uh, we are live almost every Wednesday, except next Wednesday, we will be live on Monday uh, at Phoenix Contact. And then if you have made it this far and have not, you know, given us a thumbs up and hit the subscribe button and given us ratings wherever you can, uh, please go ahead, do so. Uh, thank you to everyone, and thank you for our sponsors at uh, Phoenix Oh, you, oh, Justin's got one more thing. I got one more thing. Uh, yeah, I uh, we recently, uh, for anyone that's out there on Clubhouse or anything yeah. like that, we've got a Industry 4.0 Digital Truth Room on Fridays um, around noon uh, Central Time. Um, pretty much during most people's like lunch hour and stuff, but we'll discuss like different uh, topics. We started last week. We'll probably just do it like once a week on Fridays. Um, it's part of the 
this other group called the Boss Mindset, which is primarily a business-driven room. But I decided to sort of create a room around, just pretty much around this whole Industry 4.0. I know there's other Industry 4.0 clubs and, mm-hmm. and rooms on Clubhouse. Um, this may capture a little bit different audience, maybe some people that are on LinkedIn that normally are in sort of the circle or other people. So pretty much, and pretty much anyone can sort of come in to the conversation um, because there's things probably people are curious on that um, about what's going on um, in just technology that impacts sort of the whole industry 4.0. So just thought I'd throw that out there. Absolutely I spoke to none. Sean about that today, actually, Justin. Uh, no. I guess like my ask would be like, how do people uh, find this link, or how do people, I guess, connect with you on uh, on Clubhouse? Is there some kind of an event that they can uh, kind of register to, or yeah? So I'll, well, well, we'll probably put something out. Like I, I thought he'd put something out, but if not, I'll put something out uh, for okay. people to. Uh, and I can get you guys a link, and you guys can share it or whatever you yeah. want to do there. Yeah. Um, to awesome. that. Uh, to, to that room um it'll be it'll be a recurring room but we have to schedule it every week or where it is because clubhouse doesn't have some sort of like just way as far as my knowledge on how to just do a auto scheduled room forever you know or whatever so but yeah that's that um i can get you guys that awesome thank you Justin. thank thank you to justin again thank you to everyone else we will have clubhouse links uh everywhere that we can um and again thank you to phoenix contact as i was saying we'll see everyone monday thanks everyone take care thanks